Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 630 with Drew Neoporn. There's two things you have to learn. One is uh, professional knowledge, and the other is confidence in what you know. It seems like very simple, but when I was on the cruise ship, I was learning so much, and I was becoming so confident. You know, now I was ready in my own mind to apply it to, to go out and, and do things. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable. And when you run your first payroll you'll get your first three months free again that's gusto.com slash unstoppable it doesn't get easier than cake cake is the point of sale built for restaurants that's easy to set up and use with cloud-based access from any device 24 7 customer support and a lifetime access to cake university how could you not love cake to learn more about cake point of sale head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable and because you're a restaurant unstoppable listener you will save 750 dollars off activation again that's trycake.com slash unstoppable Unstoppable. When your employees are empowered to speak up internally, you can stay one step ahead of costly issues that can tarnish your brand before they become larger public problems. Ethics Suite is the first employee incident reporting platform developed to be fully customizable for every industry, including the restaurant industry. Unethical workplace behavior is a threat. It's time to protect your business with an incident reporting system. Find out why Ethics Suite is the leading anonymous reporting system for the restaurant industry at ethicsuite.com com slash restaurant unstoppable with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest drew important drew my man are you feeling unstoppable today absolutely <laughs> yes that is what we like to hear so in 1977 drew important graduated from cornell university with a degree from the school of heart well, sorry the school of hotel management and set out on a career in hospitality that has only been matched by few important's first restaurant the groundbreaking montreche opened in 1985 and earned three stars from the New York Times and kept that rating for 21 years. That's amazing. Over the following 33 years, he would go on to form the Myriad Restaurant Group, sorry, the Myriad Restaurant Group, and has opened and operated over 39 restaurants around the world, including Seattle, Louisville, uh, Providence, Boca Raton, London, San Francisco, Moscow, City Field, home of the New York Mets in Flushing, New York. And I mean, I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today and to, 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 to uncover those values of, of just the knowledge you have and everything uh it's gonna be great but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us you know what? <clears throat> i've always lived by serve it hot or serve it cold now it might seem a little uh simplistic but uh basically when you have no money and you're a young person and you want to achieve something um 
you basically have to pare things down. There has to be a like a spare moment where you feel you can achieve your goals with very little. Um, you know, so in 1985, I was 29, and I set out to open a restaurant with David Boulay, who was a world-class chef, and uh, $150,000. So, and we opened that. We got three stars. It's like winning the lottery without being able to collect the cash. But serve it hot or serve it cold in the food parlance is, you know, temperatures are very important because what we do is about precision and about refined. We're trying to refine. Uh, at least we were. It might have uh, recessed a little bit in the last couple of years, but um, you know, the simpler the better. The um, the distance between two dots is a straight line. I, yeah. I kind of live by that. So serve it hot. You know, when was the last time you went to a restaurant and your food was hot? You probably when we were kids, we used to blow on the food. It was so fucking hot. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> now. And and serve it cold. Well, you know, I was out in Philadelphia. We did a charity, and I was serving a, a seafood salad. And, and the most important thing was that it be served chilled. I've been to a million events. They'll, they'll put something like that out on the table, unrefrigerated for hours. Yeah. So little things. It's it's, it's, it's like of, attention to detail. It reminds me of that that keep it simple, stupid kiss analogy, it. right? That's what. It uh, is. And it's a great way to get this thing started. So as you mentioned, eight, 1985, you <coughs> opened uh, the first restaurant with the chef at the time, uh, David Boulay. Uh, but there's a lot that happened before then. I think it, it makes sense to kind of take your story back okay. to when you when you knew that this was going to be the industry for you. From what I I gathered, it was pretty early on. You knew this was your path. Yes, I I grew up a very middle class with a. A mother who was an actress, a very successful radio actress, Sybil Trent, who uh, later became a casting director. And my father, who uh, was 16 years older than my mother, uh, got married when he was 37. My mother was 21. Way to go, Dad. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> my, and they were both very good-looking people. They're very handsome father, very gorgeous mother. And um, I'm a second child. We only Me and Tracy, my brother Tracy. And my father worked for the State Liquor Authority, licensed restaurants in New York City. Okay. So in the 60s, the people who ran restaurants, they were right off the boat. They were your real immigrants. And the restaurants in New York, which, you know, every nationality, Italian, German, French, of course, uh, delicatessens, you name it. And my father, because he was um, part of this bureaucracy known as the State Liquor Authority, those people, they didn't really know the process. My father made it easy for them. He took the application from the bottom of the pile. He put it on the top of the pile. And for that, they were indebted to him. And they said, nah, why don't you, Andy, why don't you bring your family in for dinner? And so in the 60s, we, we'd eat out at dozens of unbelievable restaurants. And, you know, for me, it was the exposure. You grow up in a house with a piano. Your parents make you listen to music. Maybe um, you'll gravitate to music. I gravitated to food. And um, the theater of these dining out experiences was amazing. Chinese, you know, we went to a place um, right next to the Ed Sullivan Theater. And the Beatles were playing, you know, that night on at Ed Sullivan. But a Sunday night, where do all the Jews go? It's a Chinese restaurant. So we're talking like late 60s, early 70s at this point. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, I, I was born in 1955. So I would say, um, you know, really post 
John F. Kennedy assassinations in okay. 64, 65. So when, when you're in all these restaurants, your, your dad, and you're going out with your dad and your mom, like what was, what was the feeling? Like what, what was, was there one moment, one memory that really imprinted on you that made you really go in this direction? No, I don't think there was one moment. There were dozens of moments. Um, it was just my, because my mother was an actress. She was prone to theatricality and stages and, the ultimate stage was the restaurants. They were all like sets. Um, and the actors were the waiters, waitresses that we interacted with. The owners were all different. There was a restaurant called Headquarters. Headquarters. The chef uh, to White Eisenhower. There were these huge murals on the wall of like World War II. The guy used to come around with garlic bread and like one of these you know containers that you'd see at a ballpark. And, you know, for a little kid, it's like, oh, that's the guy with the garlic bread. I mean, and little things like that. Um, and But the owners were so nice. You know, when it was your birthday, they gave you a sparkler. If you blow out the sparkler, you can own the restaurant. All the little quibs. <laughs> no, it's terrific. And then, you know, when I finally, I said, you know, I should do this. This is, Because I realized that I was getting an exposure that most people weren't getting. You're building your, your almost like your portfolio, your mental portfolio of what your own place would be someday. You're taking little bits right. from all these experiences, I'm And sure. they were all different. They were all different. Yeah. Tom Shangri-La and the Empire, Sui Ham, you know, this Chinese guy. Oh, oh, oh. He, could never spoke, he never spoke a lick of English, but somehow he and my father got along famously. Charlie D'Angelo on 56th Street. You know, I can still taste <laughs> what his Italian food uh, was like. Uh, L'Argentoy. Uh, Cafe Chauveron, um, some of the really classic yeah. uh, French restaurants. So um, it was just natural for me to be wanted to be in the food business. And then 1972, I was a student at Stuyvesant High School, which is close by here now, but Stuyvesant on 16th Street, and I took a job at McDonald's. Okay. Which, by the way, was probably the greatest thing. I, I, I mean, it was a great experience. There's a lot we can learn from those big companies, especially early on when it comes to standards and operations. Uh, you know, I, I was in the airport in Chicago two days ago. And, you know, when you go to a McDonald's now, they give and the receipt, it says, buy one quarter pounder, get the other free. You know, so I looked, you know, I'm on sort of a diet and not eating a lot, but... I mean, that was, a, that was a great deal. So I went over to the McDonald's uh, in the airport, and the product is, you know, it's decent. It's like, but for me in 1972, you know, chance to meet girls and, <laughs> you know. But it was a great thing. They, they, they emphasized three things. QSC, quality, service, cleanliness. Uh, it was the first time they were coming into inner cities. They, they were really a suburban uh, chain. So uh, I had worked on a... Uh, store on 72nd Street, and then we were opening the 23rd Street right off uh, 1st Avenue. Store still there, actually. And uh, it was a great experience. Fantastic. And and then um, I got into Cornell. Yeah, so why Cornell? What was it about Cornell Hotel School of Management? Because you knew you wanted to get into the restaurant industry. Why did you choose this vertical of the hotel school? Well, I mean, you know, the funny thing is, is that... Um, I started looking at Lausanne in Switzerland. I was going to go to a cooking school. And then the mother of a friend of mine told my mother, that she said, you know, Cornell's got a hotel school. Um, and, you know, we thought, oh, well, if Cornell does what they do in Lausanne, then why we would go to Switzerland? So I didn't even send in for an application. My mother borrowed their application. And uh, I remember at the, mo- at the time my father got angry because it was 20 bucks when the state universities were all five bucks. I mean, this literally, I have this memory. It was big money back then. <laughs> it was big money. Yeah. And uh, 
at Stuyvesant, I was 586 out of a class of 721. Wow. So I was way down, you know, very smart kids at Stuyvesant High School. But I got in. You know, the kids in my homeroom who were applying to uh, Dartmouth and Yale and Harvard, whatever, the Ivy League schools, they didn't get in. They're the ones who went to Harper and Brockport and all these other state universities. But I got into Cornell and, you know, the, the hotel school. I get up to the hotel school and I realized very early in 1974 that it had nothing to do with cooking. That they, they taught cooking classes, but a cooking class there was uh, open number 10 can of onion soup and heat it up. I mean, it was like, it was crazy. So what was it about then? Well, it, it, it was all the disciplines, um, you know, they taught law, they taught human resources, but it was a lot of crap, a lot of theories. There was a guy named Bernard Herman who was a real chef. He taught us a little bit about cooking, and we'd get dressed up in whites. But it wasn't it wasn't a cooking school like the Culinary Institute or anything like that. So I realized I had to supplement my education. And um, one day when I was walking through the halls of Cornell, I saw a sign uh, at the uh, dean's office, and it said, I'm interested in six students experienced in Russian service to sail to the following ports. And it was um, Oslo, Leningrad, Copenhagen, Stockholm, Dublin. I had never been anywhere. I was like, oh, my God. You know, and I had never worked as a, a waiter, never. And I called the student up. His name was Uwe Christensen. He was a German student. And I said, um, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to do this. And he said, do you have experience in Russian service? And, and I didn't know, really know what he was talking about, but I said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I worked at the Concord and the Catskills, and I know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I talked my way on the ship. And uh, so in 1974, not far from here, um, right around Houston Street, I get on this ship. It's a 600-passenger cruise ship, all first class. Called the Vista Fjord, and um, I, I get changed. They give you a uniform. I get changed, and I go up to to work, and I'm the only one out of sixty waiters with a blue shirt on, oh. like I'm wearing today. And I had fifty nine waiters making fun of me. The other thing was that the kitchen was in. Uh, you got to the kitchen through an escalator. I mean, the dining room, if you can imagine, was a veritable football field. 600 seats. Wow. And so the kitchen was downstairs, and again, you went by escalator, and I didn't know how to carry a tray. So I was carrying a tray with two hands at my waist, and again, 59 waiters were making fun of me. But it's like riding a bicycle. And after that first year, 42-day cruise, um, you know, I learned how to carry a tray, three fingers over my head. And uh, I went back on the ship over the four years I was a student at Cornell Caribbean cruises during the Christmas holidays. In the summer, uh, we went to uh, the North Cape, Baltic Sea, Mediterranean. Man. And it was, you know, it was like, uh, luckily, you know, my generation missed the lottery to the draft. They did away with it. Um, because really, I, you know, in 73, 4, when the war was about to end, um, I, was, I, I was of age, let's just put it that way, uh, or I was 18 years old. But luckily, you know, I missed I missed the, uh, the the military, but this was kind of like a military experience because we were literally traveling everywhere. 
So, and eating all kinds of... You have to understand on the ship, the, the food was unbelievable. I can imagine. Well, you, you, you work seven days a week. You work breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But like, you know, I'm going up the escalator and I'm eating a sausage. I'm going down the escalator and I'm eating a lamb chop. <laughs> I, I, you know, they had six different pastries. I had all six, you know, almost every day. And I, I got off that ship. I had went from 175 to 205 pounds. Like, boom. <laughs> I just gained 30 pounds in 30 days. We like to focus on people. Are there any people during this time that really influenced you, that took you under their wing, that that gave you some serious values that you hold to this day? Yeah, I mean, um, over the years, um, I've had a few, you know, what I would call mentors. They unfortunately have all passed on. There was a gentleman by the name of Roger Martin who was a PR person, a marketing person, worked for Restaurant Associates and Joe Baum who took me under his wing and we used to, in the early days of, you know, he used to actually send me memos. I mean, I, uh, and fax them to me, you know, in the days of the faxes, you know, today we would be back and forth on Instagram yeah. or whatever it was, but, uh, but he died. And then, um, there was a fel- a great restaurateur by the name of George Lang who owned Cafe des Artistes. And he was very open with me. We'd have lunch and, and go out places. And he was very extravagant, uh, very, um, European. Mm-hmm. He was Hungarian. But and, nobody uh, during your time on the cruise ships that really... Well, no, no, you know, I was 18 years old. Yeah. And, and, you know, on the times I, I was on the cruise ship, I was like 18 to 23. Um, so you graduate yeah. Cornell in, t- in 1977. Right. Um, I know you spent at least... Uh, you opened in 85, your first restaurant. So you right. spent some time. What were you doing during that that like uh, eight-year period before opening? Like, Were you living intentionally? Did you have a plan? What did that look like? Well, the, the interesting thing, Eric, is that, you know, for me, life uh, plays itself out sometimes in, you know, you, you can be in an hour lecture and learn nothing, or you can be in an hour lecture and then there's a nugget of something that's said that if you hear it, you know, if you're awake, if you hear it and you write it down, it can be like a life's lesson. And uh, when I was at Cornell, uh, the professor said, there's two things you have to learn. One is uh, professional knowledge, and the other is confidence in what you know. So it's professional knowledge and confidence. And it's like, it seems like very simple, but when I was on the cruise ship, I was learning so much, and I was becoming so confident that, um, you know, now I was ready in my own mind to apply it to to go out and, and do things. The, the one problem is, is, hey, Drew, you know, my, my classmates say, hey, Drew, what are you going to be doing after you graduate? Oh, I'm going to open my own restaurant. But it wasn't happening. So I went to work um, one, one summer when I was at, at Cornell, when I didn't work on the cruise ships, I went to work at Maxwell's Plum, which was an extraordinary restaurant on 64th Street and 1st Avenue. The owner was Warner Leroy, whose father, Mervyn Leroy, produced The Wizard of Oz. And Warner later went on to open Tavern on the Green. He put three, believe it or not, $3 million and built the most spectacular restaurant in the middle of Central Park. And I worked there also um, in 1978 after graduation. So essentially what happens is, um, you know, it's 1977. I'm recruited by three companies and nobody offers me a job. I wanted to work for uh, Rock Resorts, Hyatt International, Western... uh, uh, Western, I think it was called, uh, you know, they own the plaza or whatever. But anyway, nobody offered me a job. I went back on the cruise ships. But then I real I was offered a job at um, Maxwell's Plum, $300 a week, assistant restaurant director. I had worked there in 76. So I took that job in 78. 
And this restaurant on 250 seats would do 900 dinners wow. on a Saturday night. It was packed. And they had a cafe uh, setting and a, a, an area called the back room. They had two different menus, a, a more extravagant uh, area, which the back room was sort of a replica of Maxime's of Paris. But right in the middle of the space was this amazing bar. And that was a time when heterosexuality was in, and it was boy meets girl. And it, it, they had the biggest single scene. And, and John and Mary, the movie with Dustin Hoffman and Mia Farrow, was filmed there. Um, and, I mean, the, the restaurant was packed all the time. Then when I graduate, they're opening Tavern on the Green. They offered me a position at the Tavern on the Green. I go to work at the Tavern on the Green. And um, that was a restaurant where you would serve 1,200 people on a Saturday night, wake up and serve 1,800 brunches oh my the gosh. next morning. Um, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it, these were all proving grounds. You so, know, so, again, the professional knowledge, yes. the confidence in that. And so, f- really, that took me up to about... 80, let's step, let's step the break real quick. I want to yeah. know, cause this, these were formative times for you yeah. really before yeah. opening your own place. So any key lessons, what, what were some of the professional knowledge? What was some of the professional knowledge you picked up during these times? Things you can share with our audience that maybe a lot of people don't know that you can kind of reflect back. Well, I know it was a while ago. You know, the restaurants are about logistics. Mm. The size of the restaurant, the bigger the restaurant is, the more staff that you have, the logistics become very problematic. They're almost mathematical. And so when you're in an environment where you're seeing, you know, 600 meals on a cruise ship going out in an hour and a half, um, or you're in the dining room of Maxwell's Plum in a tiny kitchen, the kitchen wasn't even as big as this room that we're in, and, and they're serving 900 dinners with a menu that's, that have 100 items on it. I mean, you see the logistics and, and the manner in which food has to be either pre-prepped or thought through, how it's plated, how does it stay hot, how does it get to the customer, all those things. You go to Tavern on the Green where the numbers almost double and um, and the problems doubled as well. (laughs) I saw a million problems. Uh, And and that's part of the education because, you know, you you say to yourself, well, when I own a restaurant, I'm not going to do it that way. What were some things that you saw that really stood out to you that you said to yourself, I'm not going to do it that way when I open my own place? You know, I think my success to a large extent is that the generation who was doing this before me, they really didn't know what they were doing. And not only did they not know what they were doing, but they abused the staff. They were, you know, there was almost a military-like manner in which they'd address everybody or people were captains, waiters, busboys. You know, there was this pecking order where people, um, you know, the highest treated the lowest very poorly. And so the one lesson I learned was like, you know, if you treat the people who are working with any sense of respect, I think they're going to wind up doing a better job. And um, it sounds pretty academic, but that, that that's really a, a major, you know, a major thing. The other thing is, um, you know, what? But there was a lot of posturing, but the the actual, you know, when somebody cooked better than somebody else, it wasn't necessarily rec- recognizable right away. Because the French restaurants used to dominate in the 60s and 70s. And there was also this thing that, you know, the customer really didn't know what they were getting. You know, the restaurants, you know, had dress codes and expensive prices. And, you know, you were lucky to be able to get a reservation there. Because, you know, ultimately, after Tavern on the Green, I went to work 
at La Grenouille, Le Perigord, La Reserve. And that was my, my next All those question. restaurants. Yeah, so. Because, because I, was making a, 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 I was making very good money at the Tavern on the Green because we had a profit sharing that we had sort of innovated with the owners. And then I'll never forget, you know, we come in to renegotiate whatever compensation we're going to get. And they raise... Uh, the ceiling of the sales under which, you know, above a certain ceiling, we would profit share. So they raised that up so high, and then they lowered the percentage under which we would share, which, you know, was very unfair. We we, we brought Tavern on the Green to like $30 million, I think, in 1982. Wow. And, and and they were going to screw us. So I well, basically, I'm curious. I mean, there might be know, a lesson in there. What yeah. happened after that? What did, did, did the uh, what, did uh, the reputation of the restaurant stay what it was? There was there a degrade in uh, the morale and the culture of the restaurant after that point? You know, I'm sh- they had a guy named Bruce Axler. He's dead now, but he was the they brought him in as the general manager above us, obviously. And we used to call him "Let Him Loose, Bruce," because this guy was he was just terrible. You know, talk about treating. <laughs> Staff, he wouldn't even talk to you know. Staff. He would send us memos. I used to dress like the captains because I wanted to blend in and I wanted to do side work. Like I wanted to make a salad, carve a rack of lamb, fillet a piece of fish. Was uh, this when you were you're talking about as a manager of a Tavern on the Green? Okay, gotcha, gotcha. But I hated the managers who just stood around and or they sat down and had cocktails in the middle of service. I mean, I I, I wanted the managers to be behind the sa- the servers and. So and this guy Bruce Axler would send me like uh, stupid memos. You know, Please refrain from wearing your smoking jacket. I mean, I've never heard a tuxedo called a smoking jacket. But anyway, it was like this inane crap. And then uh, I cared so much about what I did and how I interacted with the staff that I had one time a disciplinary situation, and the guy pissed me off, and I just punched the wall and I broke my whatever bone that is in your hand, and I was <laughs> I had to wear a uh, cast and but I still you know I, I came to work. Yeah, there, there was just the, the work was the most important thing, and also getting along with people, getting along with the chef. You know, there, there's for years maybe one of the biggest lessons about the restaurant business is that the front of the house and the back of the house never got along. Why? Because the front of the house in a busy restaurant they'd be making f- great money, tremendous money, and the back of the house these guys are killing themselves for you know whatever ten dollars an hour. So there was always friction. Our generation. Those walls were knocked down, both, both literally, literally and figuratively. We have open kitchens now in a lot of restaurants, but you know, we we just made it our business. Everybody has to work together. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you before was probably even coined is the term <clears throat> just servant leadership. Like you were there, shoulder to shoulder with the people that were going to work every day. And when you set example, yeah, people are not going to work harder than you're willing to work. And if you right. show them, if you set that standard, if you if you give them an aiming point, and you show them that you're willing to get down and dirty to get the job done right beside them, that level of respect right. is going to be so high. And you recognize that instinctually at a young age. And 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 also. You know, now that we're in this era of the Me Too, where uh, you see the abuse of women in restaurants, certain very famous chefs. Well, first of all, abuse of any kind is wrong. One, when all this stuff is coming out, of course, you know, I saw things like this. But then I tried to, you know, recollect in my own uh, restaurants, you know, that we behave correctly. And we did. You don't treat anybody any different than you would treat yourself. In fact, you know, the, the mantra used to be 
treat the customer like you would treat yourself. Now it's treat the customer better than you would treat yourself. You, or, or don't treat the customer the way you want to be treated. Treat the customer the way they want to be treated. <laughs> and, and it takes a little time to listen to the way they want to be treated. But the, the whole point about this is respect and dignity. I ran the New York Marathon in 1983. Good for you. Um, when I was working in, uh, as, a, as a captain at a restaurant called La Reserve on 49th Street, I was able to work lunch, go to the New York Athletic Club, take off my tuxedo, run a six-mile uh, six loop, and come back to work the dinner shift. But, you know, the, uh, the period of time, you know, you get yourself into physical condition, you, you're thinking about your future. And I remember running in Central Park and looking up and, and saying, you know, maybe I'm never going to be able to open my own restaurant. Maybe this is not, not going to happen for me. Maybe I'm just going to be ordained. But um, I was running in... New York. I was living in a village. Um, I had moved in. I had lived in the village. Uh, I actually was in an incredible place, paying a hundred dollars a month. Wow! You know, I don't know if you know Richard Brown, but he teaches the movie course at the New School, and he had just bought this building for peanuts. And you know, I had a fireplace in every room. <laughs> it was <laughs> nuts. But a month. It, was, it was. It was. I renovated. But anyway, the point is, um, I would jog all over Manhattan, and then one day. I was in an area I'd never been, and on Sundays I used to look, pick up the New York Times, read business opportunities, and I saw there was a space that said uh, 1,500 square feet uh, for $1,500 a month, lower Manhattan. I called the number, said West Broadway, West Broadway, oh, this is where I had just been jogging, or I set off to jog there, and it was in the middle, no place, you know. And I looked at the space, and I said, well, I can afford... 1500 a month that's $50 a day and I signed the lease and uh, when I signed the lease there I didn't have a pot to piss in but you know we raised $50,000 for my money $50,000 from a, par- a classmate of mine from Cornell and 50000 from the small business administration and then in April of 1985 I opened Montrachet which I mean, this restaurant when it opened, I'm, well, I'm sure we'll get into the I mean the the stories that come with the opening. But what advice do you have for for getting the money for leveraging your network, and, which is something that seems like you've had a real talent for for a long time, is knowing the right people and knowing how to manage those relationships. Uh, maybe you can give us some advice there. Well, you know, the 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 financial supports the creative. And if you don't have money, you can't do anything. But you have to understand the era, uh, the the 80s, um, you could run businesses profitably. Things weren't inflated. Prices were reasonable. And, uh, you know, the people who had pledged to me when I was a captain at some of these restaurants, customers, I said, you know, if you ever decide that you want to open a restaurant, talk to us. We'll invest. So when I presented them with the business plan, almost everyone said no. So really, my first restaurant, it was my money, my, uh, my, business, my partner's money, and the Small Business Administration. And that wasn't even enough. But with 150000 we set out to build a restaurant from scratch because it, was a, it wasn't a restaurant space. And we did, but, you know, if seven weeks into it if we hadn't gotten the three-star write-up from the new york times which we did 
uh, for a $16, that's one six three-course meal. Who knows what would have happened? But that's the equivalent of winning the lottery without being able to collect the cash. I mean, and, and that restaurant went really for 21 years. So what was it about? I mean, we, there's a lot to cover. You have such a impressive career. What was it about Montresay that you think really uh, was successful? Well, my intentions at the beginning were, were not to open a French restaurant. In fact, I wanted to open an American restaurant. I had business cards printed up that said uh, Silverado Trail Project. Silverado Trail is a beautiful place in Napa. I was really turned on. American food was the thing. And then one night, I'm at La Grenouille, and somebody ordered a bottle of Le Maurichet and Louis Latour. And, and as I'm opening the bottle, I'm looking at the bottle, and it's gorgeous green gold color Maurice and I was like that's it you know why am I trying to reinvent the wheel let's just open a place called Maurice so that that's when it changed my mind David Boulay I had met in 1983 I just run the New York Marathon uh, three days later I took a plane to the west coast I went to Spago I went to Michael's I went to Campton Place. I went all over California because that's really when the food in America was at its apex. And on the last day, I'm in San Francisco at a restaurant called Sutter 500. The chef, uh, Hubert Keller, the sous chef was David Boulay. I went for lunch there and he blew me away. He just did a meal that was just unbelievable. I came back to New York. David, if he ever thought about wanting to do a restaurant in New York, he did. You know, it's... Did you know David before this? No, not at okay. all. I was introduced uh, a captain, uh, somebody I had worked with. Actually, it's very interesting because he had worked in the kitchen at La Reserve. But when I went to work at La Grenouille, I, I, I told them about my opportunities at La Grenouille. They were trying to recruit uh, other people. And he came to work as a captain at La Grenouille. He had never worked in the front of the house. He was always a chef. But he knew... Boulay, they had worked together, and he said, you know, if you're in San Francisco, you should look my friend up. But he hadn't told me anything about, you know, the guy's talent or anything. It's just that uh, we sat in that restaurant, and, and what he did was he served us a lunch of dishes that, you know, he had worked at Roger Verge, he'd worked at uh, Freddy Girardet in Switzerland, he had worked at Popacusa, and it was like this unbelievable food colorful and gorgeous you know so so what happens you know i come back to new york and i was like yeah this guy really impressed me and and um you know his food was fantastic when we decided that you know he was going to be the chef and he was going to do it together and uh, you know one day he said to me he says why don't we call the restaurant boulet and i was like you know back then you didn't name the restaurant after yourself there were no restaurants named after themselves. You know, maybe one or two, but it was Joe's, you know. Yeah. So I said, no, no, David, you know, you have to understand if if you name a restaurant Boulet and it doesn't work, you can't use your name again. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, David Boulet and I did this for 13 months. That restaurant went for 21 years, but he was only my chef for 13 months because the day that... June 7th, 1985, the day we get three stars from the New York Times. And the article was almost 100% about him. There was like one paragraph where Brian Miller, the food critic, said, oh, and the owner, Drew Naporn, put together a nice wine list. Um, the, the day after that review, every single chef stealer in America tried to steal David Boulay. And he hadn't, you know, I, I'd never done anything except 
you know, back him up or, you know, I thought I was being very generous with him, but every single person wanted to offer him an opportunity where he could leave. And of course he never confided in me and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting these opportunities. So one time, you know, um, there were people in the dining room sitting next to a couple or whatever the situation was. And David came out and David sat with them and, and my friends who were sitting right next to them, they said, you know, he's discussing another restaurant with these people. And and that was kind of like the scenario. So I, I grabbed the sous chef, you know, in the kitchen. I said, I said, you see that? You see that? You know, and David was sitting down. I said, if anything ever happens here, that's the reason. And then 13 months later, I, I basically got rid of everybody. I mean, I had I'd, I'd worked it out where... It's it, it, it that story is too involved, but I basically found a chef, an entire kitchen crew. We were closed Sundays, went in Sunday, prepped up for Monday, gave David the keys, and that's you know. It's well documented in chefs. I think chefs, drugs, and rock and roll. Andrew yeah. Friedman's book yeah. uh, gets into the details of that situation, and and it's it's uh, really interesting. But I think what's really interesting is your ability to to surround yourself with incredible people too. I mean, right. you you didn't know David prior to going out no. to California, but you were able to convince him to fly across the country to be a part of what you were doing. I think yeah. there's some meat on that bone that we can you know cut off and, well, and learn from I, I think my mother being a casting director and and casting you're trying to find the right actor for the part um you know something she certainly rubbed off on me um, i was always i wasn't ready to settle i always wanted somebody you know you know if i'm casting for a chef i want the best person i could possibly find i don't think it's a coincidence that over the course of my 35 years of owning restaurants that you know you could point to a number of chefs that are all like stellar and then you know you know my collaboration with nobu of course and that comes in 1994 i mean that you know nobu is to me a historic moment in american cuisine right now all it is is a uh, an economic juggernaut you know in the face of restaurants that don't do very well uh, Nobu is, you know, it's an it's an amazing accomplishment. There are now fifty Nobus around the world. That's incredible. Yeah. I was going to ask Nobu that. hotels. <laughs> but you know, the trajectory basically, it's you know, my story is that Morishay was this incredible success, and I worked every single day. But Robert De Niro came in as a customer, and when Robert De Niro's girlfriend, you know, looked up from the table one day and said, um, "Bob wants to know if you ever want to do another restaurant in Tribeca." And I said, are you talking to me? Because, you know, I, you, know <laughs> you have Robert De Niro. He's in his 40s then. He'd always sit with his back to the room at Montrachet. But <clears throat> he's proposing another restaurant. We walked up the block. We looked at this space. I asked him what his vision was. He was his usual inarticulate self. So I said, you want it to be like La Coupole in Paris? Yeah, 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 like La Coupole in Paris. You know, so basically I knew I, I would be able to form the idea. And so here, with 200 seats, that's what we have at Tribeca Grill, five years, 1990, five years after Montrachet, we opened uh, Tribeca Grill. And uh, it was an extraordinary moment because... The anticipation. You I kind of want to tap the brakes real quick because right, I, I'm. Right, right. There's one thing that has me super curious, and you you kind of alluded to it earlier. Um, after I think you said 13 months, was it that David was with you? Yes. Um, you were able, and you knew this instinctually, which shows how much kind of just 
like natural ability you have just to pick up on how people react. You knew that if you uh, got rid of the chef, the kitchen would follow. The the, the kitchen would be the, his kitchen the, would follow yeah, him. Yeah, the, the kitchen right. would follow him, and you had the uh, intuition to train up a whole nother team right. on the side and have them ready to go and then to make that transition. How were you able to keep the culture? That's really what I'm interested at. Uh, Cause I'm sure that there was this, this culture that formed around David separately. And then you had to maybe when that left did the, a piece of that culture go with it. How did you keep the culture so strong to the point where you're able to maintain that notoriety? And it, obviously the, the success wasn't on David's shoulders because he, when he left, you continued going. Right. So what, what, how did you keep well, that culture so strong when t- losing half your team? You know, restaurants used to be about uh, the owners. You know, and a lot of the restaurants I went to as a young person, the owners would cook in the day and work the front of the house at night. The, in 1983, I worked at a place called 24 Fifth Avenue, and I put uh, the name of the chef on the menu. We, I, working with Leslie Revson, who was a sort of a notoriety woman chef in, um, in the village. And I put her name on the menu, and the owner came to me and said, why do you have her name on the menu? I said, you know, it's like a movie, you know, you know they're starring such and such. And so it was always, I always believed that the chef was the most important component to a restaurant because the food was most important. But in 85 at Morishay, I knew the rest, I knew that restaurant, it was kind of a kill or be killed moment. You know, he was, he was going to, uh, he was going to basically try to take the three stars that we had earned, put them in his, in his uh, bag, you know, walk across the street, steal two of my dishwashers and you know, open shop. I wasn't going to let that happen. So, you know, I had to preempt that. So I, I wasn't able to find a talent like David Boulay. So I basically hired a friend. And I knew I could control the friend uh, from a food standpoint. And I knew the way the restaurant ticked. And, uh, the, you know, we had a small crew. The, the loyalty essentially was that, um, you know, it was like, like four people. You know, but I respected the fact that they would be loyal, and that's why I replaced everybody. I, I had nothing against the other people, by the way. Bill Yosis, who was our pastry chef, um, went on to be the pastry chef at Tavern on the Green, the Four Seasons. I, we stay in, we stay great friends. Um, you know, I just unfortunately the Four Seasons just closed, but he and I stay great friends. So, so the whole point though is. Um, you know, it was really a kill or be killed moment. It goes back to that confidence that you have in what you know. Well, what I'm picking up and what I'm feeling is that you knew that um, it sounds it sounds like there was a divide. You know, there was the, the restaurant might have been split between uh, David's crew and your crew. And you, re- you recognize that when that go, like you, you knew that you needed to maybe own all that together and you were preemptive. You, you were, you didn't let it happen. You didn't let the divide happen. Like you knew, you saw where it was going and you were proactive and you, you brought everything together the way it needed to be before it came crumbling down. That's kind of what I'm hearing. From you. Well, a little bit. I mean, you know, when people make money in a restaurant, um, there, there really isn't a lot of problems. The only problem was he was planning to do another restaurant. He was, you know, and the manner in that he did it was all surreptitious. So I had to 
try to preempt that. No. So it wasn't like there was a divide. I got along with everybody. And I, Maybe and that I, wasn't and the right I, word to use, yeah. but I guess different uh, in, intentions. He had an intention to go on right. and do his own thing. Right. That's what I meant by divide. And you had an intention to, to be longstanding. Listen, and, years later, Paul Liebrandt, there was a movie, A Matter of Taste, on HBO. We got three stars again. Same, sp- same space, the Morrissey space. We got two Michelin stars. He cooked beautifully. And one day, uh, a cook comes to me and goes, so when are we moving to Brooklyn? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, oh, Paul says that we have a project in Brooklyn. And you know, I think this was after three or four years. I'm not sure. But. And then I found out you know, it, they, they'd come to him. There's some hotel. I saw the spot. It's like, you know, being cheated on by your wife, you know, it's like, and the same thing came through, but it it was also around, I think, Christmas time, which is the busiest time. So I didn't want to rock the boat, but, um, you know, it's like when something like that happens early on and how did I react to it? You know, I, I. I, I did something in 1986 that lasted 20 years. Yeah, it's incredible. But now it's like, uh, Paul Lee Brandt, that's, that's an, you know, how could, it's, it's about the character. It's the character of, of the people. And, you know, people, there's a lot of great cooks, but yeah. there's not a lot of great cooks with character. I've been so lost in your story, I forgot to take a break to, to thank oh, our sponsor. Okay. So we'll do that right now. We'll come back and bring it back to where you left off at Tribeca okay. Grill. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Okay, we're back, and you were starting to get into Tribeca Grill. What was, what did you do differently this time around? I know there was a lot of different variables. The first time around, you did it with, with all of your own money. You didn't have right. the, the money that you had oh. this time around. So what did you do differently the second time around uh, with five years of experience as an owner and with uh, the, the, the buying power behind you? Right. Well, Tribeca Grill is the coolest situation because, uh, you know, Robert De Niro – once I open a restaurant with you. But not just Robert De Niro. <laughs> Sean Penn. Wow. Bill Murray. Mikhail Baryshnikov. Christopher Walken. Ed Harris. Russell Simmons. The Weinstein brothers. Um, you know. So all these people chipped in. And we raised. Peter Max, by the way, is an investor. All these people chipped in $2.5 million. Wow. To buy the space, which was way overpriced. I thought we were getting totally ripped off. Um, we had to raise another, I guess, a million plus to build it. And, uh, but you know, it's like 
it, it, when I'm signing all the documents and it's Drew Naporn, Robert De Niro, Drew Naporn, Bill Murray, I mean, what a kick in the ass oh. that is, you know? It's like, and then... Um, but just to think five years earlier, you were doing this all on your own. You yeah, that kid totally. going for a run that so, fell, you know, fell, has opportunity fallen to your lap. Now you're doing deals right. with these incredible names. I right. can't even imagine, I can't even wrap it's my amazing. head around. And, and, you know, so... I always say this, you know, sometimes you walk into a restaurant sight unseen and you look in and it's gorgeous and you say, I got to eat here. You don't know who the chef is. You don't know what the food is, but you got to eat there. With Tribeca Grill, with all those celebrities, it was like, oh, my God. But we're almost being set up because right around that time, Planet Hollywood opened with Bruce Willis and Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. So we were like, you know, being compared to that. Um, but the only difference was when we opened this restaurant, we had such Good food. I mean, stellar food. Don Pintabona, our chef, uh, had worked for Charlie Palmer at the River Cafe, and he had he was one of the early chefs to go to Asia, and he brings back these delicious spring rolls and Asian style fried oysters, and everything he did was wonderful. But you know, we not we, we see the one thing as a restaurateur. Most restaurateurs they don't know Jack. They just don't know food. I. I I know food, but I'm not, I'm not the chef. So I'm not going to tell, you know, I, I'm not going to say, I want you to cook this dish this way. I'm going to give them free reign, but I am going to be coercive. I'm going to say, you know, have you ever seen a baked potato sliced in? Yeah. I'm going to give them recommendations. And of course I want them to pick to up on, own, yeah. yeah, well, I, I, they, they put their own imprint to it, but I want them to pick up at least on my enthusiasm. And, and the problem sometimes with the chefs is, like most people, they don't want to take direction. They want to just do what they want to do. And we were also, uh, in the early 90s, it was a moment of creativity in restaurants. We're all trying to reinvent the wheel. We're trying to be better than our counterparts. You know, we can't serve the same chicken. Keep in mind, you know, the, in the early days, the French restaurants, it was all the same food. You know, Sauveronique and, uh, you know, uh, Sauce Bernays. And, you know, now they're trying to bring back this crap. <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, but my, my buddy Thomas Keller, you know, the, these retro restaurants, forget about that. It's like, you know, this is a ridiculous, you know. But um, so anyway, we were trying to be creative at, at uh, Tribeca Grill, and we were. It's a huge success. We're here 29 years. Yeah. You put a lot of emphasis on, the, on food being a huge component. We know yes. that's super important. Service, obviously, super important. But what beyond uh, if we we pull some layers back we go deep what's happening behind the scenes how are you managing these relationships what were the benefits of having uh the ability to be tied to such incredible personal brands uh did that do you think that kind of influenced maybe this the getting the word out um the the pr the 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 press you're getting because of that do you think that played into it yeah i mean i i learned early on that the the food writers they didn't want to be harassed by public relations people. Today, it's different. In New York, the people who hired the PR people, even the writers would say, you know, we'd rather the chefs contacted us or the owners contacted us. When I opened in London in 1997 with Nobu, everybody's handled. The PR there is, you know, they're like lobbyists in Washington. <laughs> But in New York, you know, there were a handful of PR people. Now today, it's, it's run rampant. Yeah. I mean, it's an industry, you know, depending on who you PR. I know I, Bobby Flay, I think, uses three different PR people. But back then, so, you know, I'd write a letter directly. I'd get on the phone. I spoke directly. 
you know, I have enough chutzpah. You know, I'm a New I York can, Jew. I mean, I, I, I have enough chutzpah where I, I, I'll just pick up the phone. Now that we're in the age of cell phones, you know, I give out my cell phone. I, I, I don't mind somebody calling me to make a reservation. That's what I do. I can contest that you are somebody. I was really blown away because uh, I reached out to your, your people, your team, and you called me back you called me directly right. back and that blew me like i was like whoa like you never get a call directly from the person usually you're trying to get, get in touch with there's right. usually somebody they deflect to so you 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 know that, that is something that is not as popular as it should be being able, like having that that no like it's it's a direct source like when the when people reach out to you you reply and i think that's a lost talent a lost uh quality from restaurant owners today yeah i, I mean, mean you can't get you kind yeah. of stretched thin i get that I mean, listen, there's, uh, I prefer a hands-on mm-hmm. situation. So, you know, if somebody were to ask me to describe, you know, how I work, I'm, I'm a hands-on. I, I show up for work, and I want to do something. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sit down in the dining room and take up a table and, you know, drink the, the profits. I mean, I just it's never worked for me. Uh, as you get older, things change a little bit. Uh, but I always noticed there, in the restaurant business, the successful restaurateurs, they, they were all different types. You know, the guys who ran the steakhouses, you'd never see them work the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might be in an office someplace making up a, 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 a hilarious ad or a quip uh, for, for an ad, uh, like Alan Stillman. You know, I respect him tremendously, but you never see him in the, uh, in the restaurant. Uh, and then you'd know, see Tony May at uh, San Domenico or any of the places he'd work the, the door. They, they were all different. Um, I didn't pattern, my, pattern myself after any one of them. I sort of thought that the different times, um, you know, if anything, you know, Joe Baum was the guy that we all looked up to because Joe Baum had opened several restaurants for restaurant associates. He was creative. He, he was a man of detail. He went to Cornell in 43, you know. So I, I would always try to compare myself to Joe Baum, but you know, the the day that I have the opportunity to work at the Four Seasons, and we didn't tell that story, but I interviewed for the Four Seasons in 1983 when I was a captain at the French restaurants, and um, I went and I interviewed first with Tom Margatai, who's dead now. He just passed away, and he said, "You know, we all have to accept you." There's four, there were four people. Tom Margaretai, Paul Covey, Alex Van Bitter, Julia Nicolini. We all have to accept you. I hope you understand that, yes. So then I met with Alex, who had a great relationship. When I met with Paul Covey, you know, he was talking about wineries. He didn't even ask me a question. And Julia Nicolini was a friend of mine. I had attended wine dinners with him. I, you know, I knew him, so he didn't interview me. Um, I went away on this famous trip, you know, Met David Boulay. When I came back, I'm working lunch. Phone call comes in. Drew uh, Alex Von Bitter. You know, he's on the phone. He's Swiss, and he goes, "Listen, if you remember, we told you we all have to agree. Well, we we didn't agree. We can't offer your position." And I remember when I put down the phone, I thought of something that Michael Douglas once said, which he said, four out of five movies are made out of revenge." And I was like. Fuck these people! <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a great. You know, they they just passed on something. So like you know, you had asked me earlier about Tavern on the Green when I left. You know, did the place go to pot? You know, it's like Donald Trump being the president. You can't. You we're not going to be able to calculate just how bad it is. We know it's bad, but we're just not going to be able to calculate 
you know, with Obama leaving and this idiot taking over, how bad it is. Now, um, I know, you know, that, you know, certain situations, you know, that I effectuated, it had to be a better situation. But who who can really say that? But at the Four Seasons, now look at how it all works out. Yeah. The guy who screwed me, who I stayed cordial with, I kept a professional relationship with, he took the biggest bullet. He took the biggest bullet. I mean, yeah. what goes around comes around. I, you know, who t- who teaches that? You hope that that's the case. You hope if you live your life, you know, fair and square and you don't screw anybody that, you know, the, the nice lights will shine on you. But it doesn't always happen. Well, you know, one thing, and we haven't even gotten to the, right. uh, the details of Nobu and so many right. other restaurants you've opened since. We have uh, to have part two. <laughs> right. But, but one thing that I think is really important in Restaurants Top Unstoppable is less about the restaurants right. and more about the people behind the restaurants. Okay. Behind every great restaurant's a great person. That's okay. the, the biggest That's lesson I've learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in just recently finishing Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, uh, they reference you a few different times during that book. And right. one thing that I picked up just from that book is that it seems like you are the kind of person um, during this time in the, the 80s, in the, the 90s, there was a lot of interesting things going on with different chefs. And it, it, it always seemed like you were always championing, championing well, I don't know, that word's challenging me right now but you were behind everybody else all these other restaurants right. uh, when there was a new restaurant that came on scene you were probably one of the first <laughs> people there to eat and experience it and if it was great you weren't bad mouthing you weren't you know trying to oh, like no. make this you were spreading the word you were telling other people to go check it out right. and you've always seemed to really kind of get behind other greatness in the industry go talk me through that well um, specifically in Andrew Friedman's book um, I think he probably talks about Blue Ribbon yes because Blue Ribbon was a walking distance from Moriche. It was a late night place. When I went there, I couldn't believe how audacious it was because it's a small place. But you know, they're serving matzo ball soup and satays and oysters were in the window, and and everything was done on a very very high level. Now look at these guys. Uh, it's thirty five years later, and they st- they have many restaurants operating at a very high level. You know, the Bromberg brothers, they're terrific guys, um, but. You know, again, that was intuitive. I knew that was better than most. And and I would tell people, like, you got to go here. You got to go here. Charlie Trotter, you know, anybody who would do these James Beard dinners, you know, where do we go afterwards? So, you know, go to Blue Ribbon. And apparently in the book, I'm pretty sure I uh, remember that he shows up there right when they're closing because it was a blizzard. But they they stayed open, and he ordered like everything on the menu. Spent a lot of money, and they were happy they stayed open for Charlie Trotter. But yeah, that's the kind of person I was. I'm, I, I will say this: the era of the restaurateur is over. In other words, guys like me, we're like dinosaurs. You know, you hear you hear that sound <laughs> off in the distance? It's a dinosaur. Just, you know, he's dead. The chefs. It's the you know it's the only thing that the people relate to. They don't even cook anymore, but they're relatable. In other words, even myself, I swear to God, when I'm walking down the street, and you know my name is Newport, it's a little difficult, and nobody can go, "Hey, restaurateur." They go, "Hey, chef," and you know, so even you know, if people want to get my attention, they call me chef. So, um, you know, I could just point to everything, you know, whether it's the TV Food Network. At the beginning of the TV Food Network, I did every show. I did, you know, Dining Around, Chef Du Jour, uh, Grilling with Drew. You know, they created all these things. I'm a restaurateur. I'm not a chef. But then suddenly it was, you know, Mario and 
Bobby Flay. And, you know, the chef now is the only thing that matters. Most people don't know anything. And like Clint Eastwood went from being an actor to a director. Most of the chefs are restaurateurs. The, the craziest thing is Zakarian, Chef Zakarian once came up to me. This is years ago. And he goes, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a chef. I'm a restaurateur. And I remember thinking to myself, you, you idiot. <laughs> I said, the public relates to you as a chef. Just stay in your lane, you know. Well, now he's like, you know, the, the male Martha Stewart. At least he's trying to be. Because if he was a restaurateur, they see him as a businessman and they couldn't relate. So the, the, whole, the whole thing here, and really Andrew Friedman, he's really turned on by chefs. You know, he's buddies with Waxman, and every time he writes a book, he wrote the Paul Ibram book. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all about the chefs. But as a, a restaurateur with a foot in the food and the knowledgeable about the food, I think I'm, I'm sort of the last of a dying breed. There might be one or two guys. I mean, I think there are several restaurateurs who do a better job than I do. I think Keith McNally is brilliant, and I think Stephen Starr, of course, of of late is you know, he's no longer Mr. Philadelphia. He's Mr. Everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's great. I'm, I'm just happy um, that I grew up in an era where I took what I knew as a, a nobody and a nothing and I parlayed it into a couple of good yeah. places. There's no way we can cover the details of the rest of your career from the Tribeca Grill on right. to Nobu and all the, right. the restaurants that have come and gone since. But if we could distill three variables from who you are, like I said, behind every great restaurant's great person, if, reflecting back at your career, um, the things that you did right that you could share with other people to, 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 to pass on the torch to other people, the, right. the knowledge you have, what things would you share with us now in the short time we have left to empower the listeners? Okay, I was very cautious. Um, and very conservative as a, as a it's it's a business. I didn't want to ever lose any money. So, for instance, uh, I'm offered an opportunity in San Francisco to open Rubicon, and I look at the spot and it, 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 it in the financial district, and it reminded me of um, the townhouses like Lutes in New York, and I said, you know, I could do that, and then. You know, Robert De Niro had been my partner, but guess who we got there? Francis Ford Coppola, Robin Williams. So again, you know, you need all of this sort of pre-hype to a restaurant. And then what happens? We cast a lesbian chef in San Francisco, Tracy Desjardins. Perfect timing. The restaurant got three stars. That restaurant got ran for 14 years. That was the biggest charity I ever gave to in my lifetime. But... <laughs> Well, the, the, the huge lesson there was strike while the kettle is hot. Also, be in a place where culinary, you know, the food is valued. San Francisco, they love food. They love wine. So, you know, my opportunity of going on a plane and getting out to that just immersed me in a culture that was very, you know, Zuni Cafe and Wolfgang Puck and, you know, all the things. So this, this all added up. We didn't make a dime in San Francisco. But in 1994, when we opened Rubicon in April, in August, we opened Nobu. And, and you know, it's like Nobu was like the Beatles. It's just me, Robert De Niro, a, f- a fellow by the name of Mayor Tepper, an Israeli guy, and Nobu. And re- really, you probably would ask me to come back because Nobu said no the first time. Nobu said no the second time. Nobu said no to going to London. Nobu said no to everything. And yet today, as we sit here, uh, 25 years later, there are 50 Nobus in the world. 
Why did he say yes the third or fourth time? What did, what happened that made him say yes? The the truth is, well, in New York City, we had the spot, and once we got the spot, when we called Nobu, he didn't. He said, "Well, we forgot, I forgot to tell you that I'm opening uh, a restaurant in the Park Meridian Hotel," and it was this whole thing. And he came, and Robert De Niro and I just killed him. And, you know, he said, maybe I'll never open a restaurant in New York City. But then the next day he changed his mind. And in 1994, without a liquor license, believe it or not, we opened 1994. Um, it was called No Booze. No, it was No Boo is his name. But, I mean, but he had, we really basically talked him into it. Then the space next to No Boo becomes available I had to sign the lease for that space in my own name because they wouldn't put any money up for it. That's how strong I felt about the second place. When I take a meeting with Christina Ong, who is married to B.S. Ong, the owner of the Metropolitan Hotel, to do the Nobu in London, he said no. And then what made them change his mind there was a Concorde ticket. And those days I would work so I, I took the night flight into the morning flight and as my cab is pulling up to London I see them out in front of the hotel and Nobu's got a huge smile on his face I get out of the cab I said uh, I guess we're doing London he says yes <laughs> we went around the corner we had some Chinese food and we got back on the Concord and came back to New York and that's that you know so Nobu was convinced based on you know obviously our, our pushing him into the New York one but the London one was a Concord ticket Man, uh, I'm, this is just me being curious. Uh, you let him use his name for the name of the restaurant. Right. <laughs> well, no, no, yeah, that's very interesting. I named the restaurant. Okay. In other words, Matsuisa is his last name. It exists on the West Coast. So I always thought, oh, let's call it Nobu. That's the more easy, familiar. His real name is Nobu Yuki, but Nobu on the East Coast. And, 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 and literally, one of my partners uh, asked me, he says, I don't understand. Uh, the The brand is Matsuisa. I said, Mayor, Matsuisa sounds like an electronics company. Just go with Nobu. And actually, that in itself created all sorts of problems because when we went to close the deals, Nobu's lawyer wanted a licensing deal for Nobu. I said, What are you What are you licensing? There is no Nobu. Oh, his recipes, is this, is that. So anyway, um, the mere fact that. To call it Nobu, which again, there, there's no question that that, that was my call, 100. <laughs> percent He said you can call it Tokyo Rose. Uh, we don't care, but if you call it Nobu, we have to license. We have to. You have to sign a licensing agreement, and that, that's made Nobu a wealthy person. So, what got us going down this path was strike while the iron's hot. What was it about the situation that made it uh, a hot iron? Well, the, the, in New York City, there was no Japanese restaurant ever that appealed to Westerners. Every, every Japanese restaurant was with tatami. Was opportunity. Yeah, well, well, so she screens at tatami rooms. They were, they were marketing to the Japanese only. And, you know, if you go to Japan, you realize when you go to a restaurant, it's just sushi or it's just yakitori or it's just eel or whatever. When in America, everything is Westernized and everything, you know, you, you have a little of this and a little of that. When you went to Matsuisa in 1987 when it opened on the West Coast, 
you know, he'd, he he's very charismatic, and he'd look at you and he said, "Let me cook for you," and then he'd bang you with a hundred and fifty dollar makasi or something like that. So we did it a little bit differently in New York. We prune the menu. We 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 emphasize these signature dishes. I mean, the menu in Matsuisa was enormous. I mean, crazy book, and um, we just did a lot of things right. But we had a limited space. So guess what? We had no bar. We literally had no bar. So we had a service dispense out of. What was the, the space was a bank. We we served with the service bar in a in a vault, in the form of bank uh, vault, and uh, and the sushi bar became the space for the sushi bar became the space that you would normally put a bar, but that restaurant lasted twenty four years, close two years ago because the landlord wasn't happy with the rent we were paying. Guess what? We moved. The, the space that we were in is still empty today, two and a half years later. Mm. So the mission, like I mentioned before, the, the mission of this podcast is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Uh, how have you transformed since 1985? As a, you mean as a person? As, as, a, as a professional, as a person. How are you different today? How have you evolved to the person you are today, the man you are today? Um, I, I, I think the, the, the biggest thing is I, I took risks, but I was conservative if I'm the only person making money, then it doesn't work. Everyone has to make money around you. Um, the biggest success, I mean, you know, the, the sheer volume of opening 40 restaurants, you know, Mexican, Centrico, uh, Layla, Middle Eastern, uh, you know, Martha's Vineyard, you know, Ryan Hardy, who's now at uh, Charlie Bird and, and uh, Legacy Records, was my chef in, in Martha's Vineyard. It's just the sheer volume of the number of places. And then in the middle of all this is Nobu. And, and you know, what's happened with Nobu is just, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. Everybody, you know, there used to be like you're spreading yourself too thin. There can't be enough number of restaurants. So just my personal story was um, I, I sort of saw myself a little bit like a director. So when the project was interesting or creative, I wanted to write the script, find the set, hire the actors do as much as possible don't sit on my laurels but then uh things changed i mean you know the economics remember that the financial sports are creative and um nobody taps you on the shoulder but 9-11 was a seminal moment because it was a moment of uh reassessment you know all of our restaurants majority of our restaurants 10 minutes from the world trade center so it was a question of trying to think what's going to happen here and you know, by and large, we did the right thing. I mean, we had closed Layla, and then somebody wrote in lipstick on the window, Drew, please reopen. And, you know, I opened Layla not as a Middle Eastern restaurant, but as a Mediterranean restaurant. Uh, but, I mean, it's. I, th- I think uh, the other thing is my restaurants have stood the test of time. I still have Morache. It's called Batard now. It's 35 years later. Uh, Tribeca Grill, twenty nine years old. Nobu's twenty five years old. It's just amazing to, yeah. that that type of longevity in this industry is unheard right. of. And uh, congratulations on that. I just can't right. even imagine wrapping my head around that type of longevity. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I want to respect your time. Uh, we still got the the speed round. We got to crack out. So okay. take one more quick sponsor great. or break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right. Back. Cake makes it easy. Thousands of restaurant operators are using Cake POS and loving it. With its easy, simple to use,
views and intuitive interface, how could you not? Cake users are achieving peak satisfaction with 24-7 customer support, not to mention lifetime access to Cake University. No wonder customer satisfaction scores are so high. Everything about Cake is simple, including its POS integration with Cake Guest Manager and Google Reservations, which basically allows your guests to book reservations or get on wait lists straight from Google Search or Google Maps. That's pretty rad. This simple integration alone has increased guest count by as much as 25%. To learn more about how Cake makes it easy, head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can save $750 off activation for Cake Point of Sale. But you have to use my links. Again, that's trycake.com slash unstoppable. Did you know the National Restaurant Association states that losses due to fraud at a restaurant run around 4% of sales? That's like an annual marketing budget. Workplace harassment, discrimination, misconduct, theft, and fraud can all have devastating impact on a restaurant's profitability, public image, and result in legal liability. But how do you respond to and mitigate risk if an incident goes unreported internally before it becomes public? Ethics Suite provides a line of communication between you and your staff, allowing you to stay informed and respond to incidents rapidly and privately. With Ethics Suite, your employees can easily report suspicious activity or potentially unethical behavior from any device anywhere and employees can also submit reports completely anonymously if they so choose safeguarding your business starts by listening to your employees it's that simple find out why ethics suite is the leading anonymous reporting system for any restaurant in the industry head over to ethicsuite.com slash restaurant unstoppable we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it Factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Consistency. Just, uh, you know, when I come to work, uh, they don't get a different person. They get the same person. Uh, you know, if your personality was, is, is, is always erratic, I think uh, the, you're going to lose people and you won't be successful. Consistency is important. What is your biggest weakness? Um... Yeah, I don't have any. No. <laughs> um, um, I would say I don't trust people. What is w- your biggest challenge today? The economics of, of being in business. I mean, I think not just the restaurant business, but it's just very hard to make a profit, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I don't fool myself. If the, if the numbers don't make sense, I can't open a business because you'll lose money. What is one thing you look for when you're growing your team, when you're looking to bring new people on? Well, I wish I could find somebody as clever as I was, but (laughs) I've never had that happen. I I see people, I see other restaurateurs hire people that we used to hire. You know, we're nice people, but they're just not, you know, they have these overblown titles now. You know, good luck. Share one code of conduct or behavior, a way to be, a way to act, a core value. You share with your team. I uh, just keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> I, 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 I would have to curse. Can I curse on that? Yeah, absolutely. Don't shit and eat in the same place. <laughs> what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is a way to go above and beyond what's expected from well, the guest. I, I think the most important thing is not to have anything scripted. I never give. When I talk to the service, I never say you must say this and you know I must do this. And it's just to, for them to be themselves and to be natural and. 
you know, don't say bon appetit at the end of, you know, after when you put the fucking food down. <laughs> what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? Uh, Taneshi Coates' books are probably at this time. Say that name one more time for me. I think it's Taneshi Coates. Okay. And what, yeah. what are you, what are you getting from his books? So, how difficult we treated uh, black people in this country. We'll definitely be linking to that in the show notes. Yeah. So what's one thing you feel restaurateurs do not do well enough or often enough? Share the wealth. Mm. What is one piece of technology you've recently adopted within your four walls that's had a huge impact on communication, uh, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? And I mean, for somebody who's been in the industry for 30 years, the, the, the influence technology has had on this industry must have been really interesting to see that evolution. Yeah, I was going to say a track, but <laughs> um, truthfully, I mean, uh, it's it's not an area that we're that proficient in. But um, you know, certainly we keep up, you know, with the current computers and reservation systems and things like that. I, you know, there is one thing that's it's, it's kind of nondescript, but um, the water system that we have, Vero, uh, it's called Vero. Okay. You know, if you think about a, a, a box that gives you chilled water in a bottle that they supply versus having every day to bring in cases of, you know, Avion or Pellegrino and then throwing all that stuff away, just by creating this refrigerated box, still sparkling water coming out of it, that was an amazing innovation. That was a Vero? A V E R O. Vero. A Vero is a company that is like um, uh, financial statements and we'll decisions. find it and we'll be sure to link to it about G-E-R-O. you know it's something small but it, water is an important a, part of what we do first time mentioned on the show and this is the last question it's a doozy are you ready for it yes if you got the news you'd be leaving this world tomorrow all the memories of you you're working your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy or those three pieces of wisdom be the three pieces of wisdom: treat people with kindness and fairness. Um, serve the best food, uh, the be- the best of your ability, and you know attract the best talent. And, um, and uh, don't believe your own hype. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much, Drew. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator, somebody you respect and admire and believe and make a great guest on the show? Somebody that should be on my radar. Oh, that's interesting. Um, there's a fellow by the name of Kurt Zedesar. His, his last name is with a Z, but it's Gedesar or something like that. But he owns a Choto Mate they just opened in Toronto. They have one in Miami. They have one in London. Um, he sort of flies below the radar screen, but he's a very talented young man. What was that, the first name one more time? Kurt. Kurt, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you in the show. And uh, let the folks at home know, if you want to come join your team, if you're looking to grow your team, what's the best way to connect, to you, connect with you and your people if you want to come join your team? Yes. Come into Tribeca Grill and introduce yourself. Beautiful. This has been a great conversation. Uh, again, just thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. 
Unstoppables. Do not click ahead to the next episode. I have a special message for you. I'm going to be at the TRA Marketplace, the second largest trade show in the nation, hosted annually in Texas. This year in Houston, July 14th and the 15th. I can get you in for free if you are a restaurant owner, operator, if you work in the industry. I can get you in for free. Head over to the show notes. Find the link for the TRA Marketplace. Register and enter promotional code UNSTOPPABLE19. Again, that's UNSTOPPABLE19. You can get into this trade show for free. Again, second largest trade show in the nation. You can hang out with me at the Restaurant Unstoppable Media stage, experience live interviews, uh, maybe even attend a few uh, seminars or uh, keynote speakers with me. And or just go out on your own. I mean, this is a great trade show. You will not regret going. And again, I can get you in for free. It pays to be a Restaurant Unstoppable listener. Thank you and see you there.